Support for At Length with Steve Scher comes from the University of Washington Alumni Association. Welcome back to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. Here we explore a person's history, their writings, what they believe in, their story. Dr. Regina Benjamin, Surgeon General from 2009 to 2013, says we have to rediscover the joy in being healthy. As Surgeon General, Dr. Benjamin tried to find ways to remove the barriers to exercise. That included getting hairdressers involved in thinking about the most exercise-friendly hairstyle. It meant starting a get-out-and-walk campaign. Dr. Benjamin was the 18th Surgeon General with the rank of a three-star admiral. She is the recipient of numerous awards, honorary degrees. She started and continues to run a primary care clinic in Bayou La Betra, Alabama. It's a small fishing community in Louisiana. She currently holds the endowed chair in public health at Xavier University. She served on numerous boards and committees, is an officer with the American Board of Family Practice, a fellow at the American Academy of Family Physicians. She's a member of the Institute of Medicine, the first physician under 40, and the first African-American woman to be elected to the American Medical Association Board of Trustees. She's a MacArthur Genius grantee. She is also wonderfully down-to-earth, the kind of person you'd imagine as your primary care doc, friendly, helpful, non-judgmental. We talked at the Hotel Deca in the University District of Seattle before she headed off for her speaking rounds at the UW and her evening talk, part of the Weight and Wellness series, Advice from America's Doctor. You're here as part of the Weight and Wellness series of lectures. And I talked to uh, Dr. Shriki Kumanyika. She studies weight and wellness issues. And the headline I wrote for it was The War Against Obesity. And I got an email from a listener who said, terrible language. It's not about war. And when you put it like that, it sounds like you were again really talking about body types and body image. I agree with the, the listener who said that. Technically is correct. You know, scientifically is probably correct. I particularly don't like to put an emphasis on weight. It's being, a, being healthy and fit. And that's more than weight. You can be very, very thin and be unhealthy. So being healthy the more fit you get, the better. Do what's comfortable with you. So I tend not to want to focus on, particularly on weight. We have young people, particularly adolescents, who have body images issues, who deal with anorexia and other behavioral and mental health issues. I don't want to be a part of feeding into that stereotype, but I do want people to feel healthy and fit. I was struck by something that you've been concerned about as Surgeon General. You were concerned about getting women to exercise, and one of the complaints you heard was that people didn't exercise because they had spent so much money and time on their hair. And I know some people were critical of that. I would ask people, you know, why aren't you exercising today? Because my vision for Healthy and Fit Nation was to exercise 30 minutes a day, at least five days a week. And when I'd ask a few people, they'd say, well, I just got my hair fixed, or I just went to the beauty parlor. And so... We tried to find ways to remove the barrier, and that barrier is your hair. And so we came up with this idea that we would put a competition out there with the hairdressers. And we went to the largest hair show in the, in the world, Bonner Brother Hair Show, 
um, something like 10,000 hairdressers and gave an award for the most exercise-friendly hairstyle. The first year was very um, successful. The next year got even better. And then it was picked up by a news reporter. Um, New York Times wrote about it. And I got some flack from one particular, I guess, public health scientist or person who said, why is the Surgeon General worrying about hair when she should be worrying about heart disease and all these other things? Well, there was this big backlash because people didn't understand the importance of hair in our culture. In the culture of America, I had little ladies with blue hair, blue rinse, saying, I had my hair done, I'm not gonna <laughs> sweat it back. And it became a good conversation. But with that competition, the hairdressers became very involved. They said, our clients see us more than they see their doctors. They took on doing other things, having groups to get together and walk and exercise. Um, they'd have different recipes when they come in, and it became a, a cultural thing within the hair shops. What's an exercise-friendly hairstyle? Oh, they had several different ones. Some that were short hairs, long hair, just different ones that were easier to manage. But it was things that you can do easy, quick, and get back to work and still look professional. Walking was a big part of your, your um campaign as Surgeon General. Are you still a walker? Still a walker. So produced the first ever um, Surgeon General's call to action on walking to get America walking. And now I'm the honorary chair of Everybody Walks, B-O-D-Y, Everybody Walks. And it's a movement to get America walking, walking for fun, walking for exercise, walking for transportation. We don't walk for transportation in this country. We tend to, you know, walk a little bit, but we not like other nations do. Um, that movement's there. We have a hundred and over 150 organizations as members of this movement. You can go on the website, Everybody Walk, and join in. There are lots of resources there. Um, there's a group, America Walks, who it deals with the policies and trying to get some walkable cities, because many places we don't have walkable cities, to give you a score, see if your score, your city score, is good or bad, and then you can do things to help improve areas in your community to walk. So it's been fun. What's the science that tells us there's a strong connection between walking and health? Well, we have the NIH and the CDC who has a number of things out to talk about walking and health. But if you really think about it, just be very um, practical and understand that the more you move, the better. We do have science to back it up. The numbers show that particularly with the Arthritis Foundation has a lot of um, information there to say that the more you move your bones, the better even though you think it's not, because it may hurt a little bit, but more that, that you move, the, the more you'll be able to move. We have certainly have studies about heart disease and cardiovascular disease, strokes, and those sort of things with walking. But it also makes you feel better. And you're outside or inside, it doesn't matter. You get around your friends, that just community, just moving. Preventable health issues, that's personal for you. Tell me a little bit about why it's personal, but is that why you became a doctor? No. Um, let me start with why I became a doctor. I'm not sure why I became a doctor. I think it was divine intervention more so than anything. I'd never seen a, a black doctor before I got to college, so it was never in my thought process. I didn't think I couldn't. I just didn't think about it. Um, I went to an undergraduate school, Catholic school, Xavier University, which is well known for getting African-Americans into medical school and, and graduating them. Um, and so the biggest, I guess, the most popular um, organization or, or club in college was a pre-med club. And so that's how I learned about it. And, you know, it was from there. But prevention has been important. You know, growing up in the South with um, 
relatives having issues with um, heart disease and strokes. But when the president um, nominated me for the position of Surgeon General, I said in the Rose Garden that, you know, I've gone through personal tragedies. My mother died of lung cancer because she started smoking as a teenager. My father died from complications of a stroke, uh, from hypertension, and my brother died from HIV. All preventable illnesses. And I don't want other families and loved ones to, to suffer because of a loss of a loved one who, um, from an illness that could have been prevented. You're a very hands-on doctor. When did that become the choice you were going to make? I was in the second class at Morehouse School of Medicine, and one of my professors, um, actually a couple of my professors, but one of my professors was Dr. David Satcher, and he was previous Surgeon General, and he taught us community medicine, and we would have to go out into the community, spend time with these doctors in these small towns. So I thought that was the normal way. It wasn't any, you know, that's what we learned growing up. I thought public health Everybody got public health. It was later when I went into residency, I understood that, you know, that was different. But I always thought that was the way it's supposed to be. You know, you talked about the origins of public health in one of your talks that I watched. The public health service is part of the military. The United States Public Health Service started with President John Adams um, in response to a yellow fever outbreak in Philadelphia, which at that time was serving as our temporary capital. And in response to that, President John Adams um, commissioned the Public Health Service. Um, and it's a branch. We don't call it the military because we don't carry guns. We carry needles, <laughs> I jokingly say. But um, a, a branch of the um, uniformed services. Just like the Navy protects our shores, the Air Force protects our skies, we protect the public's health. And so I had 6,500 officers under my command, and they are in places all over the world to respond to outbreaks of public health issues. Some of them are in health departments, others are in um, communities. They're in agencies like the FDA. CDC has a large component of public health officers. When the CDC deploys a group of um, scientists to go and respond to an outbreak, many of them, if not most of them, will be public health officers mm -hmm. because we can deploy them just like any other military. You did it for four years. Do you miss it? I don't miss it. I'm still doing it, and I always did it all my life, so I enjoy doing it, and it doesn't stop. Um, we have a wonderful um, Surgeon General now who's doing a great job. He actually was on my prevention council, so I'm real pleased that he will continue the prevention efforts that we started. But I'm back in practice, and I love seeing my patients, and that was the hardest part about being Surgeon General, not being able to have that one-on-one -on -one with individual patients. You're back in practice seeing the patients you've been seeing for years? Yes. So I'm back seeing my, my patients in the clinic. Um, I'm not there every day, but that wasn't there every day before because I'd already always done policy and AMA and other things, so it's back to being normal. But yes, I'm back seeing patients. I also have an endowed chair in public health sciences at Xavier University. I'm there a few days a week, and then I'm in the clinic. The idea of that is uh, carrying on the tradition of Xavier, getting those students to take seriously the notion of going into health? It is, but it's also, in addition, this is an undergraduate school, so I want to bring public health to their awareness before they go to medical school to get them on that track of public health and understanding the advantages of public health um, even as early as undergraduate school. All right, I want to ask you some weight and wellness questions and, and some questions about your tenure as Surgeon General, and I want to start with this 
I, get, I want to get your response to this, this, this criticism. Mark Bittman, who he was critical of you because he said, instead of talk about curbing the marketing of junk to children, we get a discussion of limiting television viewing. Instead of banning soda from schools, we get make sure water is available throughout the school setting. In short, instead of criticizing the industry for peddling and profiting from poison, he criticizes us for falling prey to it. Is sugar a poison that uh, that we need to stand up against, the way we stand up against tobacco? You know, I get the same criticism about tobacco. I do think we should be criticizing the industry. But if, if we really think it's that critical, let Congress ban it, you know. And until they do it, all you know, I can whine and complain. I believe it's important that we give people good information, give it to them so they understand it, and make good health choices. Because we can, you know, ban it. We can criticize the industry, we can talk about them badly, but it's not going to change anything until we actually get people to understand that they make the decisions. And so what I've seen, for example, is with the sodas. Kids now drink water. They will push water. They, they know that. And they will be the ones asking for water. And if you notice that soda companies are selling more water than they ever sold before, because kids are asking for it. We're seeing healthier um, options available because people are asking for it. We're having stores like Fresh Market, Whole Foods. They are not there because, out of the goodness of their heart, they're there because there's a market to be filled. And as we as consumers start to ask for healthier options, I believe we'll get them. Do you think that in any way is a blaming the victim strategy? That's what Bittman's arguing. They're not victims, they're, they're actually champions for their own health. I don't believe in a nanny state of telling people what to do and we can't legislate behavior. So that's a little different. It is. I heard you talk about um, not being negative in these efforts. What do you mean by that? I think we should be positive. We're always telling people, you can't do this, you can't have that, you can't eat this. Tell them what they can do. Um, stop being so negative. We need to be positive about it. We can make health be happy, be enjoyable. Just you know, start to make healthy options. We start doing things that you, you know, telling people what they can do, like walking, like dancing, like exercising, like spending time with your family and enjoying being outside or, or being with each other. Those things we can do, but we spend too much time being negative. I see some reports that said for every 30 minutes of exercise, uh, like the, there's, there's science that's telling you that even small increments of exercise help yes. a person's long-term health. And it also leads to more because you start to enjoy it. And as you do it more, you want to do it more. Even small amounts of exercise has benefits. I had this idea that I tried to push a little bit was the 30-second exercise dance break. Get the radio disc jockeys to play a song for 30 seconds to be in the exercise dance break. Whatever you're doing, stop what you're doing and just dance in place or dance wherever you are for about 30 seconds. Even if it doesn't help you lose weight, it's good mental health break. Did that work? Some places were doing it, yeah. So I'd like to get more of them doing it. So a couple of places are doing it still. Were you close to Michelle Obama in terms of the thinking and strategizing that went into healthy foods? So when, we, when I first went into office, the very first paper I did was um, the Surgeon General's vision for a healthy and fit nation. And we kind of rushed to put it through because we wanted to introduce it as a, a sort of a teaser for Let's Move. Um, mine was for the entire age populations, all ages. And um, she and the secretary at that time and I introduced that paper and said six weeks later you're going to have more. And so the six weeks later was the Let's Move campaign. Sort of 
kicked it off, teed it off. The Let's Move First Lady could get much more attention and much more traction than anything you know my office could have ever done, and she did, and still doing a wonderful job with it. What do you think of the work you did and the work the Obama administration has done? What's going to last beyond your tenures? The idea of movement and the idea of getting in their head, the idea of making your own healthy choices. I think we're trying to, you know, trying to make it part of the everyday culture, and and you're seeing it happen. There's very few people you can ask today who doesn't know about Let's Move. We're seeing the numbers of childhood obesity start to stabilize, and in some places they're starting to go down. And it's been less than 10 years, so it's, I think we're moving in the right direction. Um, we really were going in the wrong direction, so that part is good. And as we keep it going, I think we'll do much better, and these kids won't be sicker than their parents. Well, you've been a part of the AMA leadership for a long time. Has it been a struggle to get the AMA to get behind these health prevention ideas? Currently, AMA is very supportive. They have an initiative going on regarding prevention, um, particularly with um, hypertension and, and chronic diseases, which is a major area, so they're really supportive. Early on, you know, it was kind of hard for doctors to get involved. I put it like this. The doctors were so busy trying to see patients, treat diseases, treat illnesses. It's like asking a fireman to talk about fire prevention in the middle of a raging fire. You know, they were so busy. So now um, we're, we're getting to the point that we can get the entire medical community, particularly physicians, starting to get them on board to understand their role in prevention. A big chunk of the Affordable Care Act is about prevention for healthy outcomes in, in a variety of ways. However, there was an entire prevention fund that was a big part of the Affordable Care Act. It was some large, huge number, like $40 billion or something, that started out when it first passed. That prevention fund got whittled down and bargained away and there's nothing there for it anymore. So we have all these wonderful things in the Affordable Care Act about prevention, but no money to do it. So why did that happen? You got to ask the politicians. <laughs> That's, you know, sadly the politicians were able to um, whittle it away. But these are the same politicians that you are talking to, and other other experts are talking to, saying let's spend money on prevention as a way to forestall spending even more money on health care in the future for people who get sick. Why is that such a hard argument to make to politicians? It's, it's so simple and it's so common sense that it's hard to get it across. Even when I talk to reporters and say, you know, the best things we can do is prevention. Oh, yeah, but what about such and such? And everybody wants a pill or a particular action when it really is in our own hands and we don't it's harder for us to make behavioral changes. They're really hard. The same thing happens when we ask for funding for prevention. Ask for funding, for example, um, to do things in a community, and we get criticized for saying, oh, you just why you want to spend money on sidewalks, you know, when we should be spending it on treating heart attacks or something. We should be treating heart attacks, and we do that very well, but we also could prevent those heart attacks. What's the lobbying needs to be done for the Congress to get money back to that prevention pool of the Affordable Care Act? That's a hard one. We've been pushing that for the longest, and we were pushing it before the Affordable Care Act. It didn't just start there. We've been pushing that for years, particularly the public health community. Um, we are now getting some people uh, to understand it a little better. We have more more supporters helping us, but it's still going to be a challenge, too. There's only so much money, and, and it's easier to see results very quickly if you spend it on an activity or a particular piece of equipment or something than it is to wait a few years to see that your prevention efforts 
are taking effect. How do you feel about the Affordable Care Act overall? Because the Surgeon General's office is um, nominated by the president but confirmed by the Senate, and not only confirmed by the Senate, but I also got my commission and my term of office by the Senate. And so I serve both the, the Senate Congress in Congress and the, the White House. So throughout the years, the office of the Surgeon General has tried to remain as non-political as we can um, because whatever passes, whether you agree with it or not, is what we have to communicate to the American people, and you need to be able to do it authentically. So now that you're out of that situation, you've looked at the politics of it, you've seen how it's flowed, where would you strengthen it? In public health, of course, and in prevention. I'd put that money back into prevention. I mean, that's, that's a no-brainer. That's what I would do. And that would take a lot of effort with, you know, with Congress. I think um, both sides of the, the aisle, both Democrats and Republicans, understand prevention and are in favor of it. But in the political world, everyone has to be able to take credit. And so they all can't take credit for it. So I guess that's the, the dance that the politicians do. Did you get any politicians to take walks with you? Yes. Yeah, well, quite a few all of them. Yesterday um, was National Walk at Lunch Day. And I got our mayor in Mobile, Alabama, to do a walk. We had walks in various sites. I did it in my clinic and had a little band. So we're still doing it. I also had the Surgeon General's Wednesday walks around the Capitol and would get various people to walk with me, um, celebrities, politicians, whoever would show up. And I want to take you back to the question of weight and wellness and the obesity epidemic. We know that there's a direct connection between poverty and health outcomes. Given that, how do we address questions of housing, questions of the way cities organize, questions of access to food, if we don't address the basic thing, which is that people need money? A study that was done in the American Journal of Public Health showed that um, poverty is as severe a determinant of health as um, smoking is in, in the United States. It is really um, a, a predictor. So we have to address poverty. We have to address those social determinants like jobs and housing and education. The issues with education, just by having a high school diploma, you can increase your life expectancy two and a half times than those who don't have a high school diploma. So those are are real issues that we have to start to look at. We do a very good job on the clinical side of medicine. We have wonderful academic health centers. We have wonderful tertiary care hospitals and um, large institutions that do tremendous work. And then when they leave the doors and go back into the community, we're not sure what happens. We need to complete that loop. As I always say, health doesn't occur in the doctor's office or the hospitals alone. It occurs in the community, where we live, where we learn, where we work, where we play, where we pray. It occurs everything we do. So we need to focus a little bit of that on, not a little bit, but I think a lot, on getting health into the community. Now, the challenge is going to be we don't want to take it away from what we do well, which is the treatment side. And whenever something new comes up, someone thinks you have to take something away. We want to keep what we have, what we're doing very well, but add to it. We have what's happening in Baltimore right now. We know that stress is is a terrible determinant of of health outcomes. We know that poverty is. And we know that stress, in part, comes from how you feel you relate to the community around you, so the police officers that you're dealing with. We have to take a systematic approach. We can't just put Band-Aids here and there. It's like a water balloon. I mean, you you push it one way, it's going to push somewhere else. So you're going to have to do a lot. 
at one time and take that entire system in, into consideration and not just one part of it. So do we increase food stamp allotments? Do we increase uh, the earned income tax credit? I mean, how do we get... I guess all those things could do, but I think, I think it's just start with education. If you educate your community, you get your kids to finish high school. If you get, they get better jobs, they have better understanding, they can participate in the democratic process better because they can make their own decisions with informed information and, and choices. Right now, when you don't have an education, you're outside. You're listening to somebody else's opinion of what should be. And so just starting and, and having good, basic, grassroots, elementary, middle school, high school education really is a start in many of these of our communities. King County Executive announced they're going to ask for a levy, and they're going to increase the amount of money that goes to serve pregnant women, to have regular visits from nurse practitioners and healthcare practitioners, so that somebody who is pregnant and starting a family all the way up till three or four years old will be having support from public health. And it actually starts before conception. It starts with eating healthy as a young kid and taking your vitamins. Once you're pregnant, you start taking your folate. Those things start early on. It doesn't just start once you know right. you're pregnant. Right, but, so. they're, but they're drawing a line. They're saying this is where we want to put our resources. And maybe at some point there may be a sacrifice further on, but the argument is if we put our resources here, the outcomes will improve down the line. Is that good policy? The earlier you can start with prevention, the better. And so if that's where um, they want to start, it's better than waiting until after the baby's born and you have problems or the mother's in trouble. So yes, the earlier the better. And they arbitrarily pick that point, what the community needs at that point. But yes, the earlier the better. Somebody asked you in one of your in one of your talks about government's role. Government's role is to help people make better decisions. Once you decide what it is for your your health and what you need, and, and um, one of the things government should do is give you the best information to make good decisions, then as government we need to help make those decisions easier. Right now it's difficult to find healthy foods that's affordable. Um, make those foods affordable. Make them available. Um, we always say make the healthy choices, the easy choices, and the available choices. They're not right now. If something has the word health on it, it costs more. Make the healthy foods affordable. That's the nub and the and the what we run against with the agricultural policy in this country, isn't it? How do we how do we make healthy foods affordable? You, you keep going back to Congress, <laughs> and the, we're we're a, a democratic society. So that's an issue that Congress will have to address, and nobody wants to really address it. But you're right. The agriculture is one. The Just in the stores, one of the things with health, with Let's Move is that some of the stores, Walmart particularly, had agreed in their Let's Move commitments to have their suppliers make healthy options, um, decrease the sodium in content, um, decrease the eliminate the trans fats, decrease the other fats, and make a healthy option that's the same price point as the regular option. And someone as big as Walmart can do that. And if the others start to follow suit, we can see some of that, that trend happen. How receptive are they? Because you must have talked to a lot of these folks. talked to quite a few. We talked to CVS, and, you know, it, and I'm sure it wasn't an easy decision for CVS to not have tobacco in their, in their stores, but they did. And, you know, the marketplace is looking at them, but they've got a lot of goodwill out of that. And it fits in with the healthy 
promotion. If you're going to be healthy, then why would you sell a product that we know kills? The same thing with the other companies as, you know, they start to see. But it comes back to the fact that we're consumers and we're asking for these healthy products. Of course, then you get into the questions of alcohol, get into the questions of drug use. I mean, you're in a state that's legalized the use of marijuana. These are all very complicated issues. We're Americans. We're, as Americans, we want to make our own choices. We want to make our decisions. We also want to have the right to make them. Um, you have the right to smoke that cigarette if you want to. You have the right to kill yourself. You don't have the right to kill me or make me breathe in your secondhand smoke. Balancing those individual rights versus the population's rights or the state's rights has been an issue that we've been dealing with. You know, we went to civil war over that. Yeah. You know. Hey, what's success for you? So you're, you're not, in the, not a Surgeon General anymore. You're still working on these issues. But looking back at the policies you were part of for the Obama administration, what is success going to look like 10 years from now? What kind of outcomes are you hoping to see? I'm pleased with some of the outcomes now. I, I know there's going to be more. There's still more. There are lots more, continuously more. But, you know, the, the national prevention strategy that we put in place for um, a roadmap for a uh, more healthy and fit nation, I think that's really been, been pleasing to see that so many communities have adopted it. Um, some states, even a couple of countries, are looking at how to become more healthy and fit using that national prevention strategy. Um, because if you follow the evidence-based um, recommendations in it, we can decrease significantly the five leading causes of death. So that's um, one of the things that, that I'm pretty proud of. You know, we have a, a Surgeon General's uh, report on suicide prevention, and 100 people die every day from suicide, and having that, that report out has been very helpful. The bringing suicide awareness, having people start to talk about it within the military, within young people, within communities, before, you didn't talk about it. We want you to talk about it. The, the walking, I like the walking initiatives and the getting people moving and exercising, but also the, the breastfeeding, I think. I got a lot of um, awareness raised about um, helping women who want to breastfeed. Every woman doesn't want to, but if she doesn't, that's okay. But those who want to breastfeed, to get us to understand that it has these wonderful benefits for the baby and the mother and a baby who is exclusively breastfed for the first six months of life is less likely to become obese, and, and a number of those, but just raising the awareness about breastfeeding. You know, I heard tell that uh, there was talk of you maybe thinking of entering politics when you, when you stepped down as Surgeon General. Are you thinking about that? That didn't last too long. <laughs> that was very quick. I think that was more of... Um, the time of my congressman who had res um, he had decided to um, leave Congress the same couple of weeks that I did, and they just made that comparison. But it's not my passion, and so if there, if we got good people in place, I'll support them, encourage them, or kick them in the <laughs> right place, <laughs> and, and keep them going and and help whatever I can do to help. Joy, why is joy an important well, part of this? My journey to joy. I think it's important that we, as I, I said earlier, not tell people what they can't do what they can, um, that it's fun and enjoy having fun. The thing about joy is that we've lost the joy in being healthy. Doctors, clinicians, nurses, you know, they're not happy about it. When you talk about it, 
um, all the burdens and things. When you talk to patients there, it's a drag, and you tell them to eat healthy. It's not. It doesn't have to be that way. And as leaders, we can tell people, and, and we as leaders can start to make it more joyful, enjoying what it is. We need to find what our own joy is. What brings you joy in healthcare will be different, and your health is different from mine. One person may want to fit into an old pair of jeans. Another person may want to run a marathon, and that brings them joy. And another person may just want to be able to sit up long enough to play with their grandkids that afternoon. Whatever it is is your health joy. We, particularly in government, have to help you find it and help you get to it and to achieve that that health joy. So um, you have to make it fun. It won't last. Being healthy can be joyful. Food can taste good if you... Um, work at it. Um, exercise doesn't have to be a drag. You can enjoy, you know, being around, either dancing, walking, whatever. You can find what you enjoy. It could be whatever. Treadmill might be fun for some people, but finding whatever that joy is, and then having government and others help you get there. But when you say having government and others help you get there, I hear I hear the Tea Party Republicans heads exploding, the Libertarians heads exploding because they think, oh, no, government, why is government getting involved in my joy? Well, I pay my taxes, and I think I should be able to make it easy to be healthy. I don't think it should be hard. So when it's not um, easy, then I want you to use my taxes to put in that lighted sidewalk so I can do it. Or I also wanted you to get those barriers out of the way. Um, the same thing that it, it, I'm in a Republican state, so I understand conservatism very well. And, and being conservative means that we're using things wisely, using our resources wisely. And I think it's wise to prevent illness. I do think that we need to encourage our young kids to go into health careers and to encourage them to look at prevention, wellness, and those sort of things as part of their career trajectory as they, they start to learn. But we do need more young people going into health careers. Dr. Benjamin, thank you. Thank you. Dr. Regina Benjamin holds the Endowed Chair in Public Health at Xavier University. She sees patients at a primary care clinic in Bayou La Betra, Alabama, a clinic she started and which was destroyed once by Hurricane Katrina, once by fire, and which she has rebuilt both times. You can hear all the interviews from our Weight and Wellness series at At Length with Steve Scher. Search for that. We're on Stitcher. You can also find us at thehouseofpodcast.com and at the University of Washington Alumni Association homepage and at the Graduate School homepage of the University of Washington. So we're in a lot of places. Let me know what you think. Write me, sshare at gmail.com. And let me know who you think we should be talking to at the UW. Thanks a lot. Support for At Length with Steve Scher comes from the University of Washington Alumni Association. Mm-hmm.